Hello and welcome to Everyday SEL. My name is Christopher Williams, joined as always by Shauna Cook Harvey, Hannah Collentine Cole, and Micey Lee. The Sacramento County Office of Education is represented here as well as Folsom Cordova Unified School District and Sac City Unified School District. So it's been a couple of weeks since we have uh, convened as a group, and uh, a few things have happened in those couple of weeks. And uh, I don't mean to be glib about it because the few things have been transformational. Uh, once again, a black man in the United States has lost his life at the hands of police. Um, and that has spurred some uh, tremendous level of protests across the country. It has sparked um, outrage and uh, a former professor of mine, Marshall Gans, who has been a community organizer for many, many years, uh, has said to me, well, not just me, but has said to many, that there is a difference between anger and outrage, and that outrage is righteous anger. And I think that there could be no better example of righteous anger than the protests that we're seeing, uh, sparked by outrage over... Uh, what can only be described as uh, a, a tangible example of systems of oppression in the United States. And as we talk about social emotional learning here on Everyday SEL, uh, as we know from the castle wheel, social emotional learning is really rooted in self-awareness, uh, self-regulation, social awareness. And when we talk about SEL, we really have to talk about SEL as it relates to equity because equity, or I would say self-awareness has to do with where we are, kind of where we plot ourselves within the systems within which we operate, right? That we could talk about Bronfenbrenner, we could talk about even multi-tiered systems of support. We talk about systems level work within education and educators, every adult, in my opinion, should be thinking about themselves as kind of where are you in the different systems at play within your community, within your school, within your classroom. And so we decided today to talk about SEL, everyday SEL, as relates to equity and as relates to the conversations that are happening before our very eyes. Uh, and I say conversations meaning dialogue, but also action. Right, and that there is conversation happening, necessary conversation, and that does relate to educators, of course, and it relates to SEL, because once again, educators and adults within the education system need to develop, if we're going to talk about SEL, a level of self-awareness, emotion regulation, and social awareness that is relative to the national and local systems within which they operate. And so that's what we're gonna talk about today. And we're gonna dive right in. And uh, Shauna, you had uh, recommended an article to us. Um, and would you, love to, would you like to kind of share with us the, the article and also the central thrust of that article? A colleague of mine yesterday sent me a link to an article called um, When SEL is Used as Another Form of Policing written by Sierra Kaler Jones. Um, and, you know, a lot of what um, Sierra brings up in this article are things that I've been thinking about for a while as a director of SEL, but also um, just in my own work as an educator and as a black woman in America. Um, and, and 
and something that I've said to uh, colleagues of mine about how we can how we need to be mindful about making sure that SEL isn't weaponized as a way of either stifling student perspective and staff perspectives about um, how we're not using it as a rationalization of assimilation um, to basically create, you know, a school system that is really aimed at serving only one group of students or, or people and reproducing kind of social injustice and inequities that exist outside of schools, but are certainly part of schooling and part of how and why schools are set up in the way that they are. Um, and one of the things that, um, you know, Kaylor Jones talks about in her article is about how um, we really have to think about decouple. She says we have to decouple SEL from its controlling nature, or it will remain yet another tool of oppression. And as someone who, you know, all of us who believe deeply that social emotional learning is critically important for, you know, not only development, but, you know, learning in general, um, that's kind of my biggest fear is, is ways that we might utilize social emotional learning as a way of doing further harm to students. Um, and it, it makes me, you know, think about how we, we talk about emotional regulation, for example, um, and, and, you know, kind of tying to what you were talking about, Chris, in terms of this uh, outrage and, you know, how do, how do we help students channel that in a way that's productive? Um, the author actually says here, to tell students to not harness their anger is to tell them their rage isn't warranted. Mm -hmm. And she cites, um, you know, poet and author Audre Lorde, who, t who says, focused with precision, anger can become a powerful source of energy serving progress and change. And I think what we're seeing in the streets across our nation right now, actually across the world around you know, Black Lives Matter and around really changing the way that we um, support, interact with, and see, frankly see Black people um, is something really powerful. And I'm wondering, I've been thinking a lot about how do we bring this conversation into schools in ways that are productive and feel safe for students? Um, but also, how do we do that with a, a workforce of educators that some of whom aren't actually ready or feel equipped to facilitate these conversations or to create spaces <clears throat> that are safe for students. Um, and it's something I've really been thinking deeply about and, and trying to figure out where do we start? How do we do this? Do we, do we have to wait on progress and how to bring this into schools for our educators to be ready and to be at full capacity to do this? I don't think that's the right answer. I don't think we wait. But then how do we as leaders then equip our, our educators to engage in the self-awareness, the self-work, the identity work, the learning of history, the self-reflection, the awareness of how, you know, how you show up in a classroom actually matters for how learning will happen for the students that you're tasked with educating. How do we help prepare them for that and help them begin that self-journey and that process while also simultaneously creating safe spaces for kids to be outraged about the presence of police on their campus or to be offended by a compilation of microaggressions that they encounter and experience every day. Um, you know, and, and doing that simultaneously, I think is, is a big challenge, but I think it's, it is the task of education systems in America that we have to step up to. We have to figure out how to do that right and how to do it now. Mm -hmm. I think now is the time <laughs> we're done, we're exhausted, we're tired. And I, there's a lot of affirmation, you know, and I'm not 
speaking for all black people, but certainly there's, there's a sense of like, okay, everyone notices. Awesome. Welcome. Welcome to the thing that we've known about and noticed and experienced for hundreds of years, but also, okay, how do we make sure this isn't just a thing of the moment? Uh, You know, I open up Amazon and it says black lives matter and black story. And I turn on the TV and my cable says, you know, here's a compilation of black stories that you might be interested in. I'm like, wow, that's awesome. Like they put them all in one library, (laughs) but (laughs) is that going to be done when the protests are done? How do we make sure that this leads to systemic and lasting change? Because we know our institutions are powerful and they have been remarkably stable for a very long time. So I'm thinking about how to, how to make sure we actually end up, with systemic change. Okay. And I, I think that's great. Thank you for that uh, synopsis. And, and one thing that I just want to make sure that, that we do is that um, I want to make sure that we make clear that the, uh, the kind of assumptions upon which that article is based um, in, I, I don't think our opinion, I think that we can kind of take a, a few assumptions as a, uh, uh, as true upon which we're basing our argument. Um, you know, uh, Paulo Paul Freire's talked about the pedagogy of the oppressed and that um, in many ways, the education system, the kind of industrialized education system is concerned uh, with compliance um, as much so if not more than about education. And that, you know, the, our, our current education system was really designed to, um, uh, educate folks for the industrial revolution. And so that ability to kind of keep everybody in line, literally, right, uh, keep everybody in line is built into our education system. And so um, we we want to talk about um, how that uh, assumption is not working for some people, right? Um, and that it shows up in a couple of ways, right? Um, you know, black children specifically are suspended at much higher rates than, than white children. Um, you know, we talk about uh, the school to prison pipeline and how when we suspend young people, they start to get a perception of themselves as problematic or criminalized. And then that relates to then uh, young people moving into systems other than the education system like prison. And what we know from neuroscience, right, the emerging field of epigenetics, is that experience shapes development as much as biology does. And we've talked about all this before, but this is important to reiterate relative to equity because the way that folks are treated shapes how they develop along a healthy or uh, an unhealthy trajectory relative to their self-concept and relative to the way that, that we interact with the world. And SEL is really critical to that because we, the adults, are responsible for shaping experiences that influence young people. And if we are not aware, the adults, of how we are doing that, then we might be unintentionally, and maybe even sometimes intentionally, but to give everybody the benefit of the doubt, let's say unintentionally creating experiences that... um, problematize or categorize or don't serve all students. 
And we are not the only ones talking about this, right? There's been a lot written about this as the article that was just mentioned. Um, but relative to SEL, if we really want to improve SEL, we have to talk about how it relates to equity and how are we creating experiences for the children we serve as a cross-cultural experience. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to kind of, again, frame that to say that, well, the, the, we're not uh, you know, presenting this article as opinion, uh, as a standalone article, but as part of a collection of evidence to demonstrate that uh, the education system as it stands doesn't currently serve all students and that there is something that we, from an SEL perspective, can do about that. And to some degree, we should be doing about that. Mm-hmm. Hannah, yeah, I think you wanted to say something. Yeah, you know, I think I think in all of this, what's really um, been a big pondering for me, and I know we talked about earlier, is this idea of, is our SEL, how it's currently, and obviously it looks different in many different contexts, but I think an important question to be asking is, is, is our SEL focused on reinforcing white comfort? Is it really focused on meeting white norms versus reaching um, reaching a culturally diverse community and building on various strengths? Um, and so I think, again, talking to the article that Shauna brought up earlier, I think that's been the big wondering for me is as we're talking about self-management and self-regulation, is all of that in the context of what self-regulation and self-monitoring looks like for white folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a big pondering for me. Yeah, my seat. Yeah, so just to add to that, and I would even go further um, as a point of reflection, is, is SEL affirming of white supremacist principles, mm-hmm. right? And um, a, a piece of, of what I read in the article that was, mm-hmm. that was really standing out for me is this idea that SEL devoid of culturally affirming practices and understanding mm-hmm. is in fact not SEL at all, right? That, that really stood out for me. And so I just want to underscore what Chris said about this idea of self-awareness for the adults in the system. The fact that in showing up, whether it's to engage with our colleagues or to design and facilitate learning in the classrooms for our students are very diverse students, um, that we are aware of what we're bringing to that engagement or that learning, um, uh, those learning conditions. And, and it, it requires a deep, deep reflection of our own biases, both explicit as well as implicit. We talk a lot about implicit biases, but we know in these times, explicit biases are showing up in real ways, right? In explicit, in in-your-face ways. We, we've seen all the videos. We've heard all about the Karens, right? And, and all of that. And so we need to really reflect on that um, as well as really thinking about our privilege and how we're positioned relative to the students that we are teaching. Because at the end of the day, if we don't do that deep dive into really understanding how we are positioned to support or not, um, to control or to be in partnerships with our students and our families, um, then we're really not doing SEL. 
I really appreciate that. And I also just want to acknowledge, um, not as a way of uh, softening this, but that this is a difficult conversation and this is a difficult conversation to hold. And it's also a potentially difficult conversation for some folks to listen to. And I think the question is, is um, are, are we okay with the status quo or do we want to do something different? And if the answer is, is that we want to do something different, then my opinion is, is that it starts with us. It starts with the self. You know, Daniel Goleman, <clears throat> in terms of, you know, emotional intelligence, social intelligence, social emotional learning, he always talks about the self, right? How are we, um, you know, to, he is very explicit about like, can empathy be taught? And he said, yes, empathy, as we have devoted an entire episode to, Empathy is the ability to recognize in someone else that which you recognize in yourself. So therefore, to build empathy, we have to build our own self-awareness. And self-awareness is not an, an, uh, uh, something that you do in a vacuum, right? We all develop. Human development is driven by uh, our interrelatedness. And so my self-awareness is inextricably linked to the folks around me, the, the way that I see myself in how they reflect my actions back to me is how I develop my, my own sense of self. And that continues. And so as an adult in a classroom, I, to some degree, exist because of the folks in the classroom. And therefore, if I'm not taking their voice and their experiences into consideration, then I am negating their identity. Um, and maybe I don't try to do that. Maybe that's not my intention. But if I'm not actually explicitly engaging them and lifting their voice and including their voice and including their identities in the conversation, then by default, I'm negating their experience. Mm -hmm. And while I may not be comfortable, um, my, if I want to be successful as an educator, what's more important? Is my comfort more important than the development of the young people I'm serving? And that's a difficult question, right? That's a really hard question, you know? And if, if I can honestly say that, no, my comfort is not more important than the development of these young people, then I have to develop a willingness to become uncomfortable mm -hmm. and to be in that discomfort. Discomfort is important for my own growth and development and therefore the growth and development of the young people I serve. And so that discomfort needs to be, to some degree, necessary to be able to develop my self-awareness, my social awareness, my emotion regulation, and include the young people in the experiences that we're, we're co-creating. Yeah, Shauna. And I, I, I think what's so hard about, I, I think what's so hard about what you're describing, that discomfort, um, is especially specifically aimed in my opinion at at white educators right mm -hmm. because we you know white educators just like the rest of us are living in a system and in a society that was set up for white comfort mm -hmm. to the point of white privilege is actually invisible mm -hmm. that white a lot of white people feel like their culture is non-existent it is so dominant and is so pervasive that it's actually a lot of white people will tell you i don't have a culture Right. I'm just me, right? And so th that the that actually helps <clears throat> contribute to the inability 
for white people to sit in discomfort because it is so unfamiliar. That's right. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas people of color um, have for generations experienced that discomfort. It's something that we actually teach our children how to, you know, actually live within and sustain and be okay with because that discomfort and getting through that discomfort and uncomfortable conversations and explicit instances of racism that, you know, we encounter, that is our survival. If you want to survive, you have to be willing to be uncomfortable, you know, at work, you know, out in the community when engaging with police, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's a, it's an experience that the majority of white people in our country have never, ever had to sit with. Right. And so in, in helping facilitate that ability for uh, educators and white educators in particular to sit in that and get through that and be willing to, to endure that is, is a muscle that I think, you know, we haven't, they haven't had a chance to, to do in a lot of instances and and it in and it requires intentionality right white people have to go out of their way to learn to understand to have conversations to be in community with to be friends with to be in relationship with people of color Mm -hmm. um and and the reverse is not necessarily true if you want to be a successful person of color in america you absolutely have to know understand and be well equipped to communicate with understand and know the lines the barriers the boundaries around how to interact with white people and make sure they don't feel uncomfortable otherwise you're existence in a lot of ways is in jeopardy and it's yeah and i just want to i just want to offer a a one tangible example might see as a white man what you're expressing shauna is 100 percent my reality when i first started uh kind of working in the realm of social justice it led to you know i'm a social worker as i mentioned many times i was uh i started volunteering at a youth group and the youth group i was living in, in manhattan at the time the youth group was out in a neighborhood called bushwick brooklyn and the first time, I mean, every time I traveled out there, but I remember the first time I traveled out there was the L train to get out there. Um, it was after a certain stop in, in Williamsburg, I was the only white person on the train. Um, and kind of as we progressed kind of deeper into Brooklyn, I, I, you know, I was the only white person on the train. And it, I remember I remember it specifically because it was the first time that had ever happened to me. It was the first time I was ever the only white person in a situation. Um, and so to your point, I had to go out of my way, like white people have to go out of their way to uh, be in community with people of color. I literally had to go out of my way, right? I had to get on a train go and, to, and ride it to a place that I had never even heard of before. I didn't even know Bushwick existed. I didn't know that it was a neighborhood. And I think that example, we could take it even further there are trains that run through Manhattan that once you get out of Manhattan, like the four and the five train, they're express lines in Manhattan and their, their stops in Manhattan are all the same. But once you get up into the Bronx, they diverge. Well, I think for me, I'll speak specifically for me, I didn't realize that they went to different spots in the Bronx until I actually started going into the Bronx. And then I realized, oh, the four and the five train are actually different trains because with the way that I rode them in Manhattan, they weren't. They stopped at the same subway stops. It wasn't until I got out of Manhattan, out of my quote-unquote comfort zone, did, did I realize that they were actually, they led to different places. And I think that that's not just my experience. I think that's a metaphor for how uh, a lot of white people uh, operate, right? 
my normal was the four and the five chain were the same. My experience of them uh, was what I thought was true and that it wasn't true. It's not reality. It was just my perception of it. And I think that that is a metaphor for how a lot of white folks operate in the world, which is the way I experience this is the way everyone experiences it. And it's not until we go out of our way and experience that discomfort that we realize, oh, there's actually a whole other thing going on here that I wasn't aware of because I never had to be aware of it. Um, I, that was a bit of a bird walk, but I think uh, it, it, that to me explains white privilege and how we experience normal. Sorry, Micey, I, uh, I- No worries. Yeah, no, that, that's um, important. And that speaks to this idea of self-awareness, right? Really understanding um, your journey and, and your awareness of that, because I often hear the counter argument um, against this notion of white privilege uh, when I talk to folks who haven't walked the path of, of being um, uh, investigating, you know, their, their own privilege. And that counter argument is always what you mean. I've never struggled. I've struggled. I grew up poor. I didn't have mm. the, you know, I wasn't affluent, you know, et cetera. And I have to remind them that, yes, you're poor. Many people were poor. We all struggle as human beings. That's just a, a, a life's journey. Um, but this system is designed so that you don't have to think about the skin color that you wear every single day, the way mm -hmm. that a black brown mm -hmm. person has to think about, the way that they navigate their daily movements the way we have to code switch, depending on the situations that we're in, because we are unsure how people are going to respond to us. The way when I walk into a room, I'm scanning for another person of color to get that comfort, mm -hmm. that sense of familiarity. Because when I look around, people are giving me the eye that I may not belong in that, that space, whether it's a meeting space, whether it's a classroom space, whatever it is. And so I, I think it's that, that conversation about privilege that uh, more white people need to have. And I, I you know, I, I worry that if we keep going towards, well, I struggle to, well, I grew up poor, well, I, and we never get to the, the true understanding of, yes, that's true. But really, let's look at the number of black lives that have died this year. And let's compare that to the number of white lives or, or others. And you, the data is showing us that privilege is very much alive and well, and we cannot turn a blind eye. That in itself is a privilege to not have to talk about it, mm -hmm. to not have to confront it, to not have to be worried about it. Right. I, you know, I, I, I yeah. talk to people who, for whom this is like an extra conversation they have to have. Well, there are black and brown people for whom this is 24-7 self-conversation, 24-7 family conversations. They're teaching their sons on how to respond to the world when they walk outside their door, how to come back home alive. That is the privilege that white people don't have to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Hannah, you had something mm -hmm. to, to say. Yeah, I mean, absolutely to everything you said, um, 
all of that really resonated, my C. And I, I think one thing I, I did want to share is when we're thinking about white privilege, um, I often go back to the white privilege unpacking the invisible knapsack yeah. by Peggy McIntosh. And I think that I just wanted to share that because there is a very, um, she provides a very practical list of ways that whiteness is made invisible and it really, as a, as a white woman, I, you know, I, I studied that in undergrad and I just recently looked at that list again and it is such a helpful way to really, really shine a light on the various ways that whiteness is made invisible to white folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one thing that really resonated with me in looking at that list recently was one of the questions was, if you ask to speak to a manager, do you mm. expect to see someone that looks like you? And I thought to myself, yeah, you know, that is a perfect example of how, again, whiteness shows up in ways that we just, as white folks, become accustomed to and we really need to work on bringing to our awareness and um, and unpacking and seeing how that shows up in how we interact with other people and think about ourselves and most importantly um how that's showing up when we're interacting with our students and students of color yeah one thing you mentioned hannah there about you know you learning about this in undergrad yeah i think is a perfect example of how k-12 education (laughs) is is doing a disservice yeah not yeah. only to children of color whose, sto- whose stories and experiences actually don't show up very often in curriculum, but also perhaps even more of a disservice to white people, white right. children who don't have this learning as part of their daily life in K-12 education. I mean, half of what I know about African-American, the African-American history and the history of the United States that includes multiple voices and is not just one side. I actually had to major in or minor in in college in order to learn this. And I remember similarly sitting in undergrad and be like, what? I had no idea. No one told me, is this just like some radical stuff that they save for people who get to college who intentionally major in that? Why right. couldn't we have learned about this, you know, when I learned about U.S. history um, mm-hmm. or, or whatever the topic is? Um, and I just think, you know, we have an obligation that if if education is truly going to be respond to this moment in history, because this we are living in the midst of a moment right. that will go down hopefully in the history books, that if we respond appropriately, that what we should be doing is truly transforming and how we go about designing and developing curriculum. What books are we teaching? How are we teaching about history? How are we facilitating conversations with students and families and our, each other as peers, as educators? You know, this is, this is the chance. Yeah. We have this obligation. And then you add on top of that, right? COVID-19 and all yeah. of the other pandemic. It's like layer and layer and layer of, of, of tragedy and loss and grieving. But also it reminds me of, um, I'm going to mess up her name and I can't even think of it right now, but a woman who gave a speech a while ago, but she talked about um, maybe this moment right here is not the darkness of the tomb, but it's the darkness of mm. the womb, that this is where we're headed towards rebirth. Mm. And let's not mess it mm. up. 
Like, let's go ahead and get that baby out. Let's change. Like, you know, let's grow up as a country. Like this is our chance. And I don't want to, I don't want to miss it. Um, yeah. So that's something that's really at the top of mind for me. And I think one thing that you did, I mean, you said so many things and this is such a great conversation and it's ridiculous that it has to come to an end at some point. Um, but that notion of like, let's grow up. Um, uh, I want to connect a few dots here. One of the things that Hannah was saying about the, you know, unpacking the invisible backpack and that, you know, uh, understanding my privilege. Um, and one of the things that I think that gets in the way is that, uh, folks just in general, like we don't like to feel like we're, we've done something wrong. Right. And so my journey of understanding my privilege, I have to understand that like they, it was something that was taught to me, right. This, um, you know, and that, uh, white whiteness as normal was something that was taught. And so it actually, there's no place necessarily like I, it, my guilt around it is, is not practical and not helpful. What is practical and helpful is that I need to actually unlearn this and realize that I do have a responsibility, right? And so when I ask to speak to a manager and a person of color comes up to me, it's important for me internally to be like, oh, isn't that interesting? I was just surprised, right? And then me, for me to just ponder that and be like, why was I surprised about that? That I shouldn't be surprised, and for me to kind of reflect upon that and not judge and not say to myself, like, oh, well, that's bull, you know, I, I shouldn't feel that way. Like, blah, blah, blah. like, I should just recognize it and be like, oh, there it is. There was an example of my privilege coming, you know, and every time because it happens to me all the time, you know, um, as quote unquote woke as I like to think I am, I'm I'm extremely white. Right. And my privilege is, you know, I'm cloaked in it. And it's a matter of me continuously making myself aware of my whiteness and understanding there it is again, there it is again, there it is again. And understand that when I make decisions, again, responsible decision-making is my responsible decision-making based on what I, what has been ingrained in me as normal, right? Or can I actually step outside myself and say, Hey, what is contributing to my decision right now? You know, um, and I think that's really important is to try to get get rid and push aside that guilt and just say, like, let's take an inquiry stance. Let's take a learner stance, because the way that I want to actually improve is dependent upon me actually doing the work. And if I'm uncomfortable because of my guilt and then that uncomfortability gets in the way of me doing the work, then that's then that that's privilege as well. Um and so I actually have to be be willing to do that and step into that discomfort. Um, and I, I want to make sure that there's a couple, we, we identify a few resources, right? Um, there's lots of books out there and, and I have a very, uh, you know, I have a list, but I want to hear more of things that you guys have to say, but a people's history of the United States, right? The Howard Zinn, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria by Beverly Tatum, uh, post-traumatic slave uh, syndrome, uh, Joy DeGray, uh, you know, um, white fragility, uh, Alexander, I think her name is something. Angela. Alexander, um, Robin D'Angelo. Oh, Robin D'Angelo. Robin D'Angelo. Okay, sorry. Um, and, but these are all things, these are all resources, because one thing I want to state very clearly is that it's not a person of color's job to educate me. <clears throat> If I want to get better at this, it's my responsibility to educate me. Um, and I think that that's something that <clears throat> gets in the way, again, of a lot of folks doing this work is, well, tell me what I need to do. 
It's nobody else's job to tell me what I need to do. It's my job to unlearn the things I've learned and, and get work on getting better at this and, and kind of uh, stripping away that privilege that has been uh, heaped on me. And I know, Micey, you need to, uh, we need to start wrapping it up, but I want to see if uh, there's other things, other resources that you want to provide or just anything you want to say. Well, I'll share. Uh, my team and I are actually reading um, Stamped from the Beginning, uh, Ibrahim. Ibram X. Mm-hmm. Kendi's uh, book. I think he has a second book, how to how to not, how to be an anti-racist. Um, those are really good resources and um, really great information and, and frames an, a nice context for anti-blackness mm-hmm. in America. It certainly existed way before uh, America, but that's been the legacy that we have used to establish this this country. So, it's it's a good resource. Great. When One resource I wanted to share was a book I'm actually reading right now called Me and White Supremacy. Um, And I think one thing that's really great about this one is it's actually, it's very interactive. So the sense is you're you're learning and then you're giving journaling prompts. Um, So I think it's it's been a really um, helpful resource as well. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I'll just chime in with one I just started reading. Um, it's called Eloquent Rage. Mm. Um, I think the subtitle is something around uh, a black feminist discovers her superpower. And it's written by a woman named mm. Brittany Cooper. Um, and I'm I'm really excited. I've only read a little bit of it, but I'm, I'm loving it in, in terms of understanding and unpacking um, what it means to be a black woman in America um, and how stereotypes around black feminism um, and black female expression um, and how troubling those stereotypes can be for black women, but also more broadly how to disrupt those notions um, and embrace that rage. So can can I say one more resource? I think the the best resource Mm -hmm. that um, anybody can and should read is uh, between the world and me by yes. Tammy C Coates. Tiny yes, coach, right? really mm-hmm. powerful book. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <clears throat> and I mean, the list goes on, right? Um, there, there is a, <clears throat> I think that to your point, Shauna, like one of the great things about this moment, if, if um, hopefully in retrospect, we'll look back and say that this was a turning point is that like, all you kind of have to do is click on Amazon and, and type in something like Black Lives Matter and, and there's going to be a whole list of resources, right? I it's mean, on there. Yeah. You don't even have to click. It's yeah. like on the banner. It's like front and center. It's yeah. like, whoa, right. they see us. <laughs> My cable company, when you click the on-demand button, it has a whole section. It, it, I think it's something like, you know, um, it doesn't say movies about blackness, but it might as well say that. It's like, it's something <laughs> like that. Um, yeah. So there, there are now collated resources in the most unlikely of places. Um, so the, the resources exist and, and it's a matter of us just kind of availing ourselves of those resources. I have a feeling that this maybe was part one of a conversation. Um, who knows how many parts there are to it. Um, but I just really want to thank each of you for engaging in this conversation. It is a difficult conversation, um, but uh, I think that these conversations are critical to us actually moving forward. Um, so thank you. Uh, last thoughts, Micey or Shauna or Hannah? I, I would just say continue talking, leaning in and listening, and mm-hmm. uh, just keep talking about this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Shauna. Yeah, no, that I agree. It, it, it's a muscle and we have to practice it and um, just be able to, I'd say to all the folks that are just waking up or just learning or just trying to understand what's happening around us right now, um, be okay with the discomfort. And this is, you know, to your point, Chris, earlier, when you kicked off this episode, um, this is how you grow. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, I hate to make a gardening analogy, but we have a <laughs> lot of plants in our backyard. And, you know, one of the things I've learned uh, as a novice gardener from my husband is, you know, some plants actually need mm-hmm. struggle in order to grow and thrive. And tomatoes are one of those. You can't overwater them. You actually need them to dry out and get thirsty before they will actually produce and grow in the way that you want them to. And I feel like that's just a perfect metaphor for what we need. We're going to have to feel the struggle. We're going to have to feel the pain in order to get to the place where, you know, the promise of the American experiment, we have to get through this. And if we do, and if we can, we will be stronger together, literally. Um, so yeah, that sounded like a campaign speech, but <laughs> who knows? Shonica <laughs> Harvey coming to a ballot box by oh, you. <laughs> you gotta edit that out. <laughs> um hannah any last words i i don't even think i could follow that up i think just keep leaning into these conversations i love that all right well thanks everybody uh and thanks for listening once again chris williams shauna cook harvey micey lee and hannah collentine cole uh we look forward to digging further into this conversation and uh hope to hope to have you back thank you 